there. My name is Dr. Yasmin Wadan, and I am Vice President of Medical Affairs for Women's Healthcare here at Bayer. And Femtech to me is addressing unmet needs in spaces like heavy menstrual bleeding for women who make up 52% of the population that's responsible for the other half of the population and responsible for 90% of the decisions when it comes to the health of their, their families. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, brought to you by Fem Health Insights, the leaders in women's health market research and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with fem health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Yasmin Yadun, VP of U.S. Medical Affairs in the Bayer Women's Healthcare Division. Dr. Wadon completed her OBGYN residency at the Combined Program at Georgetown University Medical Center and Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C. She has also published several abstracts and articles in the field of women's health. She's passionate about the care and health of women and believes that when women are healthy, informed, and can realize their full potential, their families, communities, and ultimately the world can have better tomorrows. We totally agree. <laughs> Bayer has a long-standing commitment to delivering science for the better life of women by advancing a portfolio of innovative treatments. Did you know that Bayer actually produced the first birth control back in the 1960s? But we did recently read a press release that stated Bayer is deprioritizing women's health. And I was not afraid to ask this question during the interview. We discussed this and we took a deep dive into a condition called heavy menstrual bleeding. Heavy menstrual bleeding, or HMB, as she says in the interview, affects over 10 million American women each year. So this is a very common disorder. In this interview, we discuss things like the prevalence, causes, and treatments for heavy menstrual bleeding, and this is a great opportunity to learn more about Bayer's new women's health strategy, which emphasizes partnerships with startups and which companies they're looking to work with. Learn more about heavy menstrual bleeding and Bayer through the links in our show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Dr. Yasmin, welcome to the show. Hey, Brittany. Thanks so much for having me today. It is a pleasure to have you on the show. I know you are admiring all my 3D printed female reproductive organs and bodies. Supposedly, you have some in your office. What are some things that you have? Yeah, so um, one of my favorite things that I actually use all the time is a stress ball that's actually a breast. So I use that all the time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then I have um, I have uh, models on my desk of uh, female reproductive anatomy. I have posters. I have uh, my favorite. Actually, my I take that back. My, the stress ball is one of the favorites, but my favorite favorite item is a pillow that I have that has um, anatomically correct uh, anatomy, female reproductive anatomy there. And I use it all the time. In fact, when I'm um, uh, lecturing or educating or talking all the time, it's really a great tool to be able to use uh, and fun for me to have. All right. Um, I need to put that on my list. I need a vulva pillow. Um, if anyone has an extra one, send it over. That sounds like that's something I need in my life. So I love it. 
Um, let's kick off your interview, learning a little bit more about you personally. You know, we always love to inspire the next wave of femtech innovators. And some people might not think that they're set up to be a women's health innovator, but they probably are. So tell us just a little bit about your personal background, where you're from, and then your role at Bayer. Awesome. Happy to do so. Um, and thank you again, um, Brittany. So I have been at Bayer for going on 10 years now. It's crazy to think about. I feel like it's time has flown by, but I guess when you're having fun, time flies by, especially when you're doing something you're passionate about. So women's health really sort of runs um, in my in my veins. It's my lifeblood. It's something that I've been passionate about from quite a young age. Um, uh, I am an OBGYN by background. I um, am originally from the Washington, D.C. area and did my uh, medical school training and, and work there uh, at Georgetown University and Washington University um, Hospital Center, Center. So shout out to the MedStar folks if you're listening in. Um, and then moved up to New Jersey, like I said, going on 10 years ago and uh, joined uh, Bayer from clinical practice. And that's where I've been um, this this, uh, this entire time and always within the women's healthcare space, because, again, it is a, a, an area of passion uh, for me, uh, particularly from an innovation side of things and particularly from uh, you know, improving that and from that perspective. Um, so that's where I live now, um, and I am the mom to three amazing little kids. Um, so I have an 11-year-old, I have a 8-year-old, and I have a 6-year-old, uh, one boy and two girls, and uh, my husband is a pharmacist, so also in the in the healthcare space. Um, and that's where we uh, that's where we hang out, New Jersey. Amazing. Did you practice medicine before you got a job at Bayer? Yeah, I did, um, and then joined Bayer right from practicing medicine. How long did you practice medicine for? I'm only asking this because I feel like there's some people who knew they wanted to go to pharma, others that was like they were in the healthcare system and wanted to do more or something different. So just kind of curious. So um, I did not know that I wanted to go into pharma. So I practiced for just a bit before um, really having to look into other options because of my um, situation in terms of moving. So my husband job required that we moved up here. So I needed to look at other options. Mm. And that's when I really started to discover that um, there was actually a place for um, scientists and physicians and healthcare providers outside of the sort of traditional clinical paths or research paths. And that's, yeah, that's how I got to be here. So I didn't know, but now that I'm here, I wouldn't change a thing about it. It's amazing. Well, I'm all for alternative career tracks. I have a PhD in genetics and I run a women's health podcast. So um, <laughs> like pursue whatever you want, y'all, whatever studies and then whatever career you also want. Amen to that. Hopefully Amen. they build on each other, but if not, also just live your best life. Um, <laughs> so for our listeners who may not be sure, can you please just give us a brief overview of what is Bayer? Sure. So really what inspired me most about being at Bayer here, Brittany, is um, there are it's so dynamic in terms of the, the areas and the spaces that this organization supports. So um, I'll talk maybe a little bit about uh, Bayer and women's healthcare because that's where I, where I live and what I live and breathe every single day. Um, so Bayer has been in the, we, the women's healthcare space for um, a very long time. So uh, for almost 60, over 60 years, um, Bayer actually launched the first birth control pill ever 60 years ago, which is crazy to believe, but that's Bayer did it. And um, that sort of sparked in my, in my humble opinion, sort of this wave of innovation in this space um, and really allowed for uh, a lot of the, the, the changes that, that we saw, we saw happen in the, in the, the health of women and the opportunity that women um, uh, could realize. Um, and so since then, there have been additional sort of um, innovations that have happened within the women's healthcare space. 
um, in a number of spaces um, leading up to the IUDs, right, the Mirena IUD, um, which we'll talk a little bit about today, um, other hormonal IUDs that are available on the market like Kylena and Skyla. But most recently, um, what we're supporting now um, in terms of innovation is a product in the menopause space. So we have um, a product, a non-hormonal product that is currently in um, the uh, in its phase three trials. And we're hoping to um, hear a little bit more about the readout on the, the, the data there. Uh, towards the end of this year. Um, so that's, you know, sort of a little bit about women's health care. Um, again, many spaces, including contraception, including menopause, um, but also looking to to expand um, outside of that as well. And, you know, maybe outside of women's health care, um, what I'm most sort of inspired by is that Bayer really is a part of my life and I'm sure the lives of others in, in many different regards, you know, from the vitamins that they have, in, I have in the cabinet for my kids to take or for myself to take, on our consumer health side to even the food that we eat, right? Bear has a, a large, um, uh, a large uh, a place and a player in the, the crop, the, the crop science um, side of things as well. So, just really um, happy and, and proud to be a part of the Bear organization. That sounds amazing. And Bayer does have a great track record of, like you said, being one of the first to put out the birth control and IUDs and et cetera. We've had Bayer on the show talking about other innovations that they're working on. Um, but there was a news report and I would be, uh, bad host of the femtech industry. If I didn't ask this question, there was a report that came out that said that Bayer was deprioritizing women's health research and development. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I'm happy to address that. So, um, there are many different ways to approach innovation, right? We, in any space, um, and, you know, early discovery is certainly one, one way. However, um, there are other ways like a focus, focus on partnership, um, focus on mid to late stage development and life cycle management that are additional ways to approach innovation that aren't necessarily, you know, sort of bench research or early discovery. And I think from an organizational standpoint, that is what Bayer has chosen to do when it comes to women's health care is to focus on those um, paths and those channels um, in order to do so, right? In order to be able to, you know, to focus on in terms of development innovation, um, this this partnership aspect, this mid to late, mid to late stage development aspect and life cycle management, um, because we feel that 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 is a place where we can um, have a um, huge impact and be able to bring innovation to women, right, to clinics. Uh, in a much um, more efficient and speedier way, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. So um, what I'm hear- hearing you saying is the deprioritization is on like the very early discovery, R and D, lab bench, and then, and then there's a, a almost a reprioritization or focusing okay. on the hey, you guys R and D this stuff, prove to us that it's having some traction or efficacy or you know clinical data. And then we'll help you take it to the next level. And, you know, honestly, that is um, the pharma method for women's health. Honestly, it's like par for the course. So um, do you, and you may not know this, but I'm just kind of curious, do you know of other areas in health that pharma has done this where they've kind of um, allocated out the R and D? I don't, I can't think of anything else, but I also haven't asked this question before. Yeah, so uh, honestly, Brittany, I I wouldn't I can't think of any other yeah. area either outside of women's health, but that's also because that's what I what we live and breathe, right? Yeah, that's the yeah. space that I work in, and as I said, women's healthcare is part of our DNA. Whether it relates to our inline brands or you know products in the clinic that are already in the clinic, that's sort of where we sit. Um, but I'm sure, as you said, that there are other you know industry partners that have chosen to make that decision around other spaces as well. But for yeah. women's healthcare, that's where we sit today. Yeah, we remain fully you know committed to the space. Because it's such an important space. I mean, I say this all the time, and I, it, 
I sound like a broken record to myself, but hopefully everybody that I say it to is a new person. Um, you know, it, we're talking about the 52% of the population here, right? And it's 52% of the population that's responsible for the other half of the population. Uh-huh. And 52% of the population that's responsible for 90% of the decisions that get made within the family nucleus, right? Um, whether it comes to health care decisions or financial decisions, right? So that that is the population that we're working to uplift and support through this innovation. Yeah. Well, super interesting. And I think that is a, another story for another day, maybe a Forbes <laughs> article of mine as to how and why pharma is doing this. Because um, I don't necessarily think it's a, it sounds like it's a bad thing, but you're deprioritizing women's right. health, but it's like, okay, well, actually it's, it's a, it's a strategic move and yeah. it's interesting. Cool. Yeah. Well, I'd love to jump into the condition that we're going to deep dive into today, which is heavy menstrual bleeding. So mm-hmm. can you please describe to our listeners, what is heavy menstrual bleeding and how is it different from just regular menstrual bleeding? Sure. So heavy menstrual bleeding, we you know, the, we, we say HMB, that's sort of like our shorthand for it. Um, heavy menstrual bleeding is also, it's, it's excessive bleeding, right? It's bleeding more than the average bleeding that someone would have with their um, cycle. And um, it's associated with heavier periods, right? Heavier blood flow and or longer than average periods mm-hmm. um, during um, any, you know, given time in their cycle. Um, so what exactly does that look like, right? Because if you, if you talk to the sort of you know, uh, person on the street and ask them what, you know, it, to them, their period might be their normal period, right? And that's what we try to sort of get across to folks is that if, if, if that's been what folks have, a person has experienced their whole life, to them, that's normal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so helping folks understand exactly what that looks like is really key, right? And key indicators of HMB or heavy menstrual bleeding are experiencing um, blood clots during bleeding, changing a tampon or a pad more than every two hours, avoiding social activities or um, planning around the period, um, having to get up in the middle of the night to change clothing or bedding, et cetera, right? So that's really impacting the quality of life or having to plan around it mm. um, is, is experiences that women who have HMB actually, you know, go through on a daily basis when they're having their cycle, which is crazy to think about. But again, to some folks, that may be their norm. And if, if they don't sort of aren't armed with the information um, to understand that there that this isn't necessarily sort of what happens on, in the average case and that there are treatments out there to help sort of to help um, address it. Um, it's really, um, it's, it's really, uh, I think, a, a lost opportunity to help them, um, you know, sort of uh, live a better quality of life. Yeah. And I hear you talking about kind of like diagnosing based on the description of activities. Mm-hmm. Is there a biological diagnosis? Like, is it certain amount of milliliters of blood that's lost? Yes. So it's greater than 80 milliliters of blood, which is about six tablespoons. Per day or in total? Yes, yes per day. Six tablespoons. Okay. I'm going to, I'm for promoing this episode, y'all check out our Instagram. Cause I'm going to measure out six tablespoons. Cause that'll be yes. interesting to see. Okay. Um, and you know, is there any way for women to measure if they have that many milliliters or when they go to the doctor, is the doctor asking for a sample or like, are we literally just diagnosing heavy menstrual bleeding based off of like experiences? Sure. So I think, yes, asking those um, questions around the woman's experiences are key indicators, right? That's sort of like a very real example and assessment of what she's experiencing. But there are other opportunities to evaluate whether a woman has um, heavy menstrual bleeding, right? To diagnose heavy menstrual um, bleeding, um, obviously a a history is taken from the, the, the person coming in to see their provider, but um, the, the provider might also perform certain tests or exams 
including blood tests and evaluating the actual uterus um, for imaging uh, as well to understand what the root of the bleeding is, right? Because there are different causes of heavy menstrual bleeding as well. And um, taking that time to assess what the root cause is, is important, um, particularly when then looking at what the treatment options will be at the end of the day. Yeah. So what are the causes of heavy menstrual bleeding? So different causes um, include um, structural um, challenges or structural um, issues that are going on with the uterus. One example I can give you is uterine fibroids, right? That's a common one that we sometimes see um, uh, in, in women coming in with heavy menstrual bleeding. But there are other there are other inorganic causes where there's really no um, set reason that we can find when running through the exams or looking at the, the uterus or the structure that would cause the bleeding, that it's just sort of that person's way excuse me, and how they are experiencing their menstrual cycle. And that then helps us sort of um, go through a, um, a decision tree about what the treatment option will be. And do, what's the prevalence of this? Like, how common is it? And does it disproportionately affect women of certain races, ethnicities, and ages? Yes. So um, HMV impacts about one in three women in the U.S., believe it or not. That's um, a lot. One yes. in three. Okay. We're the two of us here. Like, (laughs) there's actually our marketing people are also on the line. Somebody here has HMV. Like, I always said, thing it's crazy. Okay, it is right, but it's but diagnosis is difficult, and and it actually can cause additional feelings of isolation and stress because of the things that we talked about earlier, right? And so, you know, folks aren't necessarily that comfortable coming forward and discussing um, the challenges that they might be having. But it is it is um, quite uh, prevalent based on what I just shared with you. Or they maybe had shared it, but were not, they were dismissed, right? Like, well, of course you're bleeding. Like, of course you went through your pants. Like, of course you're using tampons, right? So. mm -hmm. Right. And and the other, the other aspect too, is that it might be something that, um, you know, sort of familially that, that it, that is just something that they dealt with, right. And they're like their moms or their aunts or their sisters. It's just, that's how our periods are. And so again, it might not be abnormal to that person that's experienced that might be their norm, right? Even though that we know that heavier bleeding is not necessarily the average that the, the average person experiencing a cycle would go through. Yeah. They find that in endometriosis that women will not go to the doctor for many, many years until their adulthood because living with their mother who likely also had endometriosis and wasn't diagnosed is like, oh yes, of course, like you need to have a whole day on the bed with a heating pad. Like that's normal, but it's yeah. just like, it's like family trauma. Like, <laughs> oh, this is how things are done. And it's, you know, and then we grow up and we're like, what just happened? <laughs> in fact, 51 of those, you know, individuals that we talked about experiencing the HMV, 51% of those women think heavy bleeding is just one of those things, right? Wow. Um, yeah. And, and that to in and of itself can prevent someone from, you know, approaching their, their provider to actually talk about this, get a diagnosis and, and get treatment. And I mean, that's huge for femtech founders to know about and investors, because when you have a one in three ratio of potential market size, and yet 50% of them, now you're also all of a sudden one in six, you know, now it it actually knows that they have it, right? So similarly with menopause, women have menopausal symptoms on average for three years before they realize it's menopause. Huge market, we're missing of sales there, right? So, wow, this is super interesting. And then um, is there anything disproportionate about heavy menstrual bleeding with based on race, ethnicity, age, location? Yeah, I would say um, for sure there are demographic um, differences. Um, women of color tend to experience um, heavy menstrual bleeding. And um, it's that's in part due to, for example, the incidence of or prevalence of 
um, certain conditions. Like I mentioned before, uterine fibroids is also more common in women of color. And so they may, that may lend itself to those women experiencing more heavier menstrual bleeding um, than others. So that's just one example, but yes, to answer your question very, very straightforwardly. Yeah. Do women, um, uh, I know you said fibroids, which can develop later in life, cause it, but are, uh, how often is this something that's like you either are born with heavy menstrual bleeding and need to be addressed versus like you had a normal period and then it started to be heavy? Yeah. It's really dependent on what that root cause is, right? Because there are women who are born with, for example, bleeding disorders. And those women will experience that heavy menstrual bleeding even from the right from right from the, the get, right? First when time, they start yeah. their period from the first time they have their menstrual cycle, um, versus someone who may develop fibroids over time and then experience heavy menstrual bleeding that way. Yeah. What solutions have been developed for this? Yeah. So there there are a number of solutions and treatment options that, that are available. Not not any currently that I know that are in development. Um, women have a few treatment options depending on, again, their age, general health, um, their medical history, and again, what that root cause is that we talked about. Um, some, while some women may want to um, reduce the amount of bleeding that they have, others might choose to focus on sort of the, the downstream effects of that bleeding, right? So whether they have symptoms of anemia, whether they're having um, intense cramping, et cetera. So it really depends, again, on, on what that, that woman is experiencing and what she chooses to address that's most impacting her quality of life. Um, women can take iron supplements um, for uh, anemia, to adjust the anemia, for example. They can take um, ibuprofen to manage some of the cramping and the side effects that, um, that uh, occur in that way from HMB. Um, other options include, for example, um, oral birth control um, pills um, from a hormonal perspective to help regulate the bleeding. Um, from a bear perspective, we have the um, Mirena IUD, which is indicated for the treatment of heavy menstrual bleeding and women who choose to use that as an option um, if they're looking for contraception as well. Um, and uh, other treatment options include uh, surgical treatment options um, and um, other oral medications that aren't uh, hormonally based. I heard that there's a, um, a um, solution that is something like they're putting, they put a drug into the uterus via the cervix in the office and like the woman stays for an hour and then it comes out or something like that. It's like some kind of therapeutic, like direct therapeutic in the uterus for heavy menstrual bleeding. Is that right? Yeah. They're, they're uh, anti-fibrinolytic anti treatments. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I was like, okay, that's why I couldn't remember the name of it. <laughs> Give myself a pass on that. <laughs> that, that, um, again, work in different ways and are very dependent on the root cause. Um, Mirena, for example, is the first hormone-releasing IUD that the um, FDA approved to treat heavy menstrual bleeding um, for up to five years. Um, and studies show that it's safe and effective. And in clinical trials, which was really interesting, uh, in women who use Mirena for HMB, it rapidly reduced their heavy, heavy periods. So nine out of 10 um, women were successfully treated with um, HMB using the Mirena after six months. And the majority of those women experience an 80% reduction in their bleeding after three months and a 90% reduction in their bleeding after six months. And we're talking about women who are enrolled that had double or triple amount of, of the bleeding that is even defined as heavy menstrual bleeding. Oh my so God. not more than the 80 mLs of bleeding that was happening. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's going to be a much longer promo video if I try to show that <laughs> all those teaspoons or tablespoons, I should say. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about that. Does the IUD and birth control like stop the period or does it just limit it, like reduce it? 
So um, again, it depends on the IUD that you use. So depending on the, the, the amount of hormone that's contained with the, with the um, IUD. So Marina has 52 milligrams of IUD and um, it can create shorter, lighter periods, or in some cases, um, the period can actually be uh, absent. It's called amenorrhea. Um, so the period actually won't appear at all. Um, and that was the, the, the rate of that in the clinical trials was around 20%. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, that is what, what, again, in real, what the real life experience will be um, when using treatment options like Mirena for HMV. Yeah. And Mirena, does it, the hormones, are they already, uh, built into the IUD and they just diffuse over a five year period? That's exactly right. They're built into the um, IUD and the the um, majority of the sort of mechanism of action, if you will, is very localized in terms of its treatment of the HMV. Um, their release of the hormone into the sort of systemic environment is on the order of picograms. So it's very, very little um, and sort of bringing back to the original point that it's very localized in nature in terms of the way that it works. Yeah. And is there any non-hormonal solutions besides like hysterectomy or... Um, there are other surgical, um, options like what we call endometrial ablation, which is essentially causing a scarring of the inside of the uterus, uh, to prevent that endometrial lining from thickening and then bleeding out uh, on, from cycle to cycle. Um, hysterectomy is one that you mentioned, uh, mentioned, but there are also other, um, treatments like, uh, non-steroidal, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, oral medications that can be taken to, um, re- reduce the flow as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess for women who are, you know, cancer survivors or can't have hormones, that those are kind of the options that they would have to do. Exactly. That, that, that would definitely be a discussion with their provider about what would be, um, you know, appropriate for them given their, their, their history. Can you tell us about the um, drug Bayer has in clinical trials for endometriosis? So Bayer had actually two um, products that were um, early early development, similar to what we talked about before and in discovery. Um, but uh, those products, you know, sort of didn't pan out the way that we expected, which is sort of par for the course when we talk about early discovery and early mm-hmm. development. Um, but that sort of doesn't necessarily um, re- uh, replace or um, negate the fact that endometriosis is a huge area of unmet need, particularly for bear um, and particularly within the space of women's health care. And so um, that is an option that's on the table for us to take, you know, take a look at in terms of um, partnership, mid to late stage development, et cetera. Um, so that's that's where we, we are in terms of endometriosis, right? Really to continue for opportunities in that space, um, even though those sort of those early assets didn't necessarily pan out. Um, yeah. Uh, do you know if they didn't pan out because they went to like the next phase, like they went to animal models or they went into human models and then it failed or was it kind of a slow burn? Um, you know, I wasn't that close to the development process, so I wouldn't be able to share. Um, so, you know, no I, I wish I could, but I, I'm not that close. But since I yeah, could, I'm yeah. The, only re- the reason I bring that up, listeners, is because we see that a lot of times in women's health because the backdrop to scientific discovery is a male paradigm. And right, so right. We'll, we'll use male cells, male animal models, and then we go to humans and all of a sudden it fails and everyone's like, oh, why did it not work like at all? And it's like, because you were giving endometriosis to male mice. Like maybe there's something about the female body that is, you know, impacting the effectiveness. So that's kind of why I was wondering, but... And I would say that's even that's even the case outside of when we're developing for women's healthcare solely, right? Yeah. Even when we look at like cardiovascular or oncology or even other spaces like that, I think this is a hugely important topic for us to. And again, we can do a whole other podcast on that. Mm-hmm. But to spend some time talking about, you know, sort of the the the, the physiology of the female um, body 
and how that um, responds to certain therapeutic treatments or even how it um, how the um, the how women experience certain conditions um, differs, even though there are conditions that happen in both males and females. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I hear you saying a lot about like Bayer wants partners. Do you only want to partner with other like therapeutic startups or is Bayer also interested in partnering with for like digital assets or CPG consumer packaged goods? Like we have a lot of femtech startups listening. So what kinds of startups like are you looking to partner with? I think there's no exclusion criteria, if I can use a scientific term, right? <laughs> um, Brittany, there's no exclusion criteria. I think it's just an assessment on a case-by-case -case basis, dependent on, from, a, um, from an organizational standpoint, what the strategic priorities are and, you know, and then what, um, what the partner can bring to the table. Very cool. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Yasmin, this has been an amazing episode. We have two last questions that our listeners love. We have a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs. So what's an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Um, so I would say, um, one, increasing... Let me back up real quick, because um, I can get really passionate about this. <laughs> so I would say, I think recognizing, first and foremost, that it, access is a huge part of healthcare, particularly in women's healthcare. And what do I mean when I say access? Access is creating awareness, um, ensuring education, and then offering equal opportunity to um, to that innovation um, when it becomes available. And I think while we um, today we did, we talked a lot about HMB and periods and contraception, um, as I mentioned, there are still a lot of areas within women's healthcare that um, that need that innovation uh, and that that thoughtful mindset that um, researchers can bring to the table. Um, we talked about endometriosis, but there are other um, areas within this space, um, adenomyosis, um, even even with a GYN, within the GYN oncology space that are really, um, you know, really ripe for ripe for innovation and ripe for new um, therapeutic options. The other that I will make a plug for um, is uh, obstetrics, right? Obstetrics is an area that has had little innovation for quite some time for very real reasons. I think um, there's a lot of um, hesitance to enter that space because of the, um, because of the, um, you know, some of the risks that may be associated with it, given that, you know, you're, you're caring for someone who's, who's uh, carrying a, a, a child. Um, but that doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't take a look at how we might be able to approach that. Uh, and really, this is a quote that I'm stealing from someone at the, the FDA, but, you know, really protect women through research, not from research um, in this space. So I think that I would say that's, that's definitely for sure. Um, another, another area. And, you know, Thankfully, menopause was one of those areas as well. But as I said, you know, that's one, one area that we're looking to tackle already here at Bayer with our, um, the, our product that's currently in, in phase three. It's a non-hormonal. Um, uh, and uh, hopefully you'll hear more about that towards the end of this year. It's uh, Alan Zanatan. So. Can't wait. And then our last <laughs> question is, what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Um, I think it's, as I mentioned before, recognizing the access piece and what makes up access um, is number one. Uh, number two, recognizing that um, it's a, we all work in an ecosystem together and it's, it's going to take all of us um, to work together in order to get anything um, to ultimately the, those that we serve. And those are the, the patients that rely on the innovation and um, rely on us to be able to bring things to market, right, and make them available, um, and then finally, I think it just taking into account that, you know, while these, you know, discussions are uh, occurring and they're sort of day to day for us, uh, because that's what we live and breathe, that, you know, not all not all people with these conditions and, for example, with HMB or with periods have access, you know, to this type of care or can afford it. And so, again, going back to the whole 
uh, education awareness and equal opportunity, making sure that that's all that's woven into the fabric of anything that's done when it comes to innovation in the women's healthcare space or in any other space for that matter. Mm, love it. Such a great message. Thank you so much today, Dr. Yasmin, for your time and the work you're doing. Um, really important stuff. Thank you very much for your time today, Brittany. I was happy to be here with you. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Yasmin Yadan, the VP of U.S. Medical Affairs in the Bayer Women's Healthcare Division. Learn more about heavy menstrual bleeding in Bayer through the links in our show notes. Okay, Fem fans, it's time to get engaged. If you love the show, then you'll definitely enjoy reading our weekly newsletter. Subscribe at femhealthinsights.com. While there, you can also join our virtual community, which has over 1,000 Femtech founders, investors, and advisors you can get insights and feedback from. We have an active events calendar, jobs board, and much more. Please give our social channels for Femtech Focus and Fem Health Insights a follow. The links are in the show notes. And don't forget, sharing is caring. Send this show to a friend or colleague and keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness. Mm-hmm.